Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Ruby Under a Microscope by Pat Shaughnessy. And last week we took a break from the book to go over some of Pat's notes, which were super helpful. This week we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter three, and we dive deeper into special variables, summarize what we've learned in this chapter, and then look ahead to chapter four. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. How did you find this week's readings, Ron? This week's reading was much, much better. It was much more manageable. I feel like there was uh, a story to follow, which I always appreciate. I felt like it was, it felt like it really included a lot of things and wrapped up a lot of stuff for me. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. What about you? Same here. I, I really did enjoy this reading. And it's interesting because um, it, it comprises of an experiment and a C code section and a conclusion and intro. So it's not, they're things that maybe we wouldn't have expected to get so much joy out of, but no, I enjoyed it. So let's begin with experiment 3-2, exploring special variables. Yes. So we first take a look back at figures 316 through 326, where Pat mentions that there is a value called SVAR slash CREF, which we've talked about, I think, across at least at least one episode, maybe even a couple episodes. And it's really interesting because one of the a few of the questions that he starts off with is he says, what are these two variables? How can Ruby save two values in one location on the stack? For that matter, why does it do this? And it's funny because the entire time that I've been saying SVAR slash CREF, it never actually registered to me that those were two variables in one place. For some reason, I thought, I just always saw it as one unit. I didn't see it as like two things to, um, you know, to be saved. So that immediately was like, oh crap, I didn't even notice that that was what was happening. What was your reaction to that? I think it was one of those things that I had... At the time of reading, I was like, I don't really understand this at all, but I'm just not going to worry about it. And so I was really looking forward now to unpicking um, what they were. Yeah, exactly. I was I was almost proud of myself because I felt like I did like a an awesome Nadia move. I said, <laughs> this is a thing and I'm just going to accept it. I'm not going to I'm not going to dig it and dig too much into it. So um, that really worked out in my favor. So we talk about that EP. What does EP stand for again? Environment pointer. Thank you. So we talk about here how the EP minus one slot in the stack is usually holding an SVAR value. And that SVAR is uh, short for special variables, which is defined in the stack frame. And so we talk a little bit about what special variables are. And frankly, I don't think special variables was something that I really thought much about recently. And it talks about how these special variables are values that Ruby automatically creates just to make our lives a little bit easier based on what's going on, based on the context and the environment. And so a couple examples that Pat gives is dollar sign asterisk, which is set to the argv array, and dollar sign bang, which is to the last exception raised. So guess what? What? I was looking at argv and I was like, oh, this is something that I keep seeing, but I don't really understand. So guess what I've prepared? <gasps> is there an idea sidebar? Yes. Yes. Awesome. So I had a feeling of what argv, of what the argv array was, but I wanted to be sure. So I did a little bit of Googling and I found a great blog post, which I'll add to the show notes. 
And so in its simplest form, argv stands for argument vector. And so this is a variable that contains all the arguments that are passed to a program uh, by the command line. And this is something that comes from the C language and it's implemented in many other languages, including Ruby. In Ruby specifically, um, argv, so the capital argv, is a constant that's defined in the object class and it is an instance of the array class. So it's got all the methods that you expect to have on an array. Um, and I thought this was a little interesting bit of trivia. Ruby's argv implementation is different to how it's implemented in many other languages in that the zero index of the array is unique in not being the program itself, but references the first argument of a program. So if you have cat.rb and you pass it one, two, three, in other languages, um, argv0 would be cat.rb, but in Ruby, it's the one. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so I thought that was neat. Yeah, I think, have we dug into argv with confident Ruby or anything? But when I saw it, I thought to myself, I feel like we've we've used this or talked about it before. Am I just making things up? It's one of those things I think you just see it and it's come up and it's never really explained. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember specifically digging into this before. I really don't think we have. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your awesome sidebar. Yay. <laughs> so going into these special variables a little bit more, we talk about how usually when we use the dollar sign character, that indicates a global variable. So now we have a new set of questions, which is, does that mean that special variables are global variables? If so, why does Ruby have a pointer to them on the stack? So we start with a simple example. It's a regex example. And here we have slash fox slash dot match. And then in parentheses, we have the string, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. And the next line we have puts, and then in a string, value of dollar sign ampersand in the top level scope colon, and then we have interpolated dollar sign ampersand. And so here we are trying to figure out what would the output of this be? And so if we ran that code in the console, we would get value of dollar sign ampersand in the top level scope colon fox, which tells us that the value that Ruby has saved to the dollar sign ampersand is fox. So now we move into a slightly different example in listing 3.9. And so here we have str equals the string, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Next line, we have slash fox slash dot match. And then in parentheses, we're taking in the argument str. And then we have a method called search. So we have def search taking in the argument str. In that method, we have slash dog slash dot match taking the argument str. Puts and then the string value of dollar sign ampersand inside method colon. And then we have the interpolated dollar sign ampersand end and then we immediately call that method in the next line so we have search taking in the argument str and then finally in that little block of code we have puts string value of dollar sign ampersand in the top level scope colon and then interpolated dollar sign ampersand so basically what we want to know is when we call that search method what do we get? What's the value of that dollar sign ampersand? And then when we just call regular puts the same way that we did in our first code example, what is the dollar sign ampersand value there? And so when we run this test, we get dog for the value of the dollar sign ampersand in the method. And then we get fox for the dollar sign ampersand outside of the method. 
So this is what we would expect to happen. And so here, we can clearly see that the dollar sign ampersand is not global because it's giving us different values based on where we are in the script. And we also see that even though we called the search str method and it gave us a different value, Ruby still saved that initial Fox value uh, even afterwards. So we see something really interesting happening here. And so with figure 3-27, we see a really nice little diagram of the EP in the stack that tells us exactly what's going on. Yes. And so this is referring to similar diagrams that we've seen earlier on in this chapter. Um, and so I'm going to start on the left. We have one of those tall rectangular blocks divided up. Um, basically, it's the stack that we're used to seeing. And the first three have a label that says top level scope. And then the next three, working our way up, has a label that says method scope. So from the bottom, it reads str, then svar, then special. And then again, for the method scope, str, then svar, then special. And we've got on the right, coming out of the first svar, we can see that essentially it's a representation of the array where dollar ampersand is equal to fox. Um, and then there's an et cetera to, to um, highlight that there are other special variables that are stored. And then coming out of the SVAR higher up, we've got dollar ampersand equals dog. And we can see how when we're in the top level scope, the EP points at the first special. And by the first special, I mean the one that's closer to the bottom. And then when we enter the method, um, the EP points at the um, second special. And so this is showing us how depending on which scope we're in, that's where the environment pointer is. And so when we're trying to access special variables, we go to EP minus one, i.e. the SVAR that's below where the environment pointer currently is. And so this was great because this was very clear to me and I totally understood what was going on. Um, and yeah, these kind of diagrams are starting to make more sense to me, which is good. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's all, it's all slowly but surely coming together and holes are being filled in and that's always a lot of fun. So now that we understand that, we're going to do another example, which is figuring out how that dollar sign ampersand behaves when we are calling it inside of a block instead of a method. So here we have listing 3-10. And we have a similar setup. So we have our str equals the string, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Next line, we have slash fox slash dot match passing in the, uh, the variable str. And then we have two dot times do. And then in that block, we have slash dog slash dot match taking in the argument str. Next line, we have puts and then the string value of dollar sign ampersand inside block colon and then the interpolated value dollar sign ampersand end. So we've ended that block. And then finally, we have puts and then the string value of dollar sign ampersand in the top level scope colon and then interpolated dollar sign ampersand. So here we're trying to figure out what is that dollar sign ampersand going to be in the two places that it's called. One is inside the block and one is outside. So if we look at the results, we see that we have dog every single time. And so this is definitely different than our method, where if it was our method, the inside of the method would give us a different value than outside of our method. And so this tells us that Ruby considers the top level and the inner block scope to be the same in terms of how it uh, determines what the special variables are going to be. And so that is uh, how dynamic variable access works. Okay, so now we're going to look at figure 3.28 to see how this is working. So starting with the YAF stack on the left and going from the bottom, we've got for the top level scope, 
str s far and then special with an arrow pointing in saying previous ep because our current ep is in the block scope and so looking at the block scope we've got s far special c ref and then special again and actually i think i said that wrong i think the s far and special in the middle is referring to a different scope and for the block scope it's the c ref and the special on top which is where um, the current environment pointer is and so coming out of CREF, we have a label that says lexical scope. And so what Pat is trying to show here is that with blocks, blocks are considered to be the same scope as top level with regards to special variable. However, they do have a different lexical scope. And lexical scope, um, and I'm just going to read from the book first, he says it refers to a section of code within the syntactical structure of your program and is used by Ruby to look up constant values. So I think what he's saying here is we've got the main top level scope, which the block um, still operates on. But within the block, we can create, um, I think, constant values, which are only accessible within the block. And so that's why we have this differentiation between a top level scope, which refers to those special variables. But also there's lexical scope, which is like another layer. And um, he says that we're going to look at this more in chapter six, but that the CREF value is used to do things like eval and instance eval. So hopefully by chapter six, that will become clearer because I'm still not sure about the distinction, but I think I get the high level. And so just to summarize that, because um, the block is still within top level scope, there's no new SVAR. It uses the SVAR on the top level scope, and we've got a... a an arrow coming out of the right of that, which shows that dollar ampersand is equal to dog. Okay, I'm going to be satisfied with that and hopefully understand it better in chapter six. <laughs> Great. Look at me learning. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so that basically wraps up chapter three. Uh, and so in the summary of it, I actually, I read it and it made me really appreciate just how much we had talked about and what we've covered. Yes. Uh, so we talked about how Yarv executed simple Ruby programs. We even talked about how much faster the different versions of Ruby are compared to other versions and why and in what scenarios. We got into uh, the fact that we're using a virtual machine designated specifically to execute Ruby programs. We talked about local and dynamic variable access. Uh, we talked about the internal YARV stack. So we actually covered a ton of stuff in this one single chapter. And in chapter four, which we're going to start right now, we're going to talk more about control structures and method dispatch. And actually, um, looking at that summary, it made me wonder that maybe that's why this, this chapter was quite difficult. Because what I'm sensing is that chapter introduced a load of new stuff. And it sounds like from the hints that Pat has been giving each chapter from now on is going to be a bit more focused in on a particular element mm. of some of the stuff that we covered in chapter three. So for, for example, chapter four seems like it's very focused on just control structures, how particular methods operate and just looking at that. And then we know already that chapter six, I think, is mainly looking at lexical scope. And I think chapter five or something else is looking at objects and classes. So I'm hoping that maybe it's just a case that chapter three, we just had a load of new concepts. And as we go throughout the book, each chapter is now going to be more focused and dive deeper. So by the end, we'll be like, ah, everything falls into place. And maybe we'll go back to chapter three and read it again and be like, oh, this is, this makes so much sense. That would be great. Yes. Yeah. I like that. And yeah, we've talked about this before, but um, in chapter three, there was a lot of like, you know, we'll get into this more in the later chapters. And so now we're at those later chapters. So I'm excited to dig in and uncover and explore some of these uh, some of these concepts. So shall we quickly look at the beginning of chapter four to see what's coming up? Mm -hmm. 
So chapter four is called Control Structures and Method Dispatch. And initially I was like, I don't understand what this means. But by the end of the intro, I was really excited to, to go further. So Pat starts by saying that in chapter three, um, he explains how Yav uses a stack um, and how it executes a list of instructions and then accesses variables either locally or dynamically. And so something that's very important for any program language is how you control that flow of execution. And so now this is interesting because it turns out that YAV has a couple of um, low-level control structures that it uses to construct Ruby's own control structures. So we have concepts in Ruby like if or unless. And inside YAV, there are two low-level instructions. One is called branch if and the other is called branch unless. And for example, in Ruby, we have things like while end or until end loops. And instead, YAV has a single low-level function called jump. And this means that it can change the program counter and move through our compiled program. And essentially, just combining, um, just making up different combinations of branch if, branch unless, and jump instructions YAV can then execute most of Ruby's control structures. So if, unless, and all those different things. And then the other thing that he says is that when our code calls a method, so maybe like times, um, YAV uses the send instruction, which we've obviously seen a lot in the YAV um, instructions when we see the send call info mid. And this is called method dispatch. And Pat says that send, we can think of as one of Ruby's own control structures and perhaps the most complex and sophisticated one of all. And so what we're going to do in this chapter four is dive into how does YAV control how it executes um, our Ruby program and how it uses its own low level instructions to execute the methods that we write. And so we're going to learn about um, method dispatch and how Ruby itself categorizes methods into types. Um, and it's just quite cool because looking ahead at the roadmap, the first thing that we're going to look at is how Ruby executes an if statement. And for me, this was really exciting because I'm like, wow, this is a really um, specific type of method that we use all the time, conditionals. And we're going to learn how those specific type of methods are executed. Mm -hmm. Yep. So this week, I'm going to give the reading six or seven, six or seven. Seven. I'm going to go with a seven, I think, because mm -hmm. it's a combination of the reading being um, a lot better. Like like we said, we learned so much. I was able to appreciate all that we'd um, picked up in chapter three. I really found the, ex the experiment interesting and I'm getting really excited about the next step. So I'm just going to say it was a seven experience for me. What about you? Yeah, same. I was going to give it a seven as well. Um, I thought it was really well explained. I like the different examples. Um, and and I also feel like I'm I'm becoming a better reader for this type of book. Where I've, I was definitely way more patient this week than I have in previous weeks. And that helped. Uh, but then just ending chapter three and having a look at all the different stuff we learned really, really made me appreciate just how much stuff was covered. Um, and even if, you know, I definitely didn't understand 100% of it, I understood... I like to think most of it, um, but I feel a lot more confident that we're going to dig into it and I'm going to understand it at the level that I want to in the future. So this is a seven for me as well. I have one question before we wrap up. Yeah. 
Do you think that um, you were a much more patient reader this week because you came and spent a week with me in London and my aura <laughs> rubbed off on you? That probably had a, a big part in it, yes. Yes, I think that I'm, I'm channeling my inner Nadia. Yay. So we want to know, what did you think of the reading this week? Tweet us your score at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.